This lesson is designed to teach us about the two sacraments or ordinances of the church, water baptism and the Lord's Supper. These ordinances, as practiced by the believer, are also means by which the power of Christ's finished work on the cross becomes real and effective in the believer's life. Learn how to receive the power of God into your life as you participate in the sacraments of the church. We're continuing our study on what we're calling as the foundation. Some basic themes that are topics that um, we as believers need to be grounded in and understand from the word of God uh, to help us in our walk with God, in our journey with God. And so we've been touching on some basic themes over the last several Sundays. And uh, we're continuing our study on foundations, track one, where we... Uh, Track 1 is intended to take a believer to becoming a disciple. And uh, we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about the sacraments of the church. The sacraments or the ordinances of the church. You could use the word sacraments or uh, ordinances. By talking about sacraments or ordinances, what we're referring to is things which the Lord Jesus himself instituted to be practiced by the church. The sacraments or the ordinances. That means the Lord Jesus determined that believers, those who believe in him, would practice these things as part of their life together as a community of believers. Now, what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus established only two sacraments for the church. He himself instituted the sacrament of water baptism and the sacrament that we call the Lord's table. Now, there may be others who look at it differently. There might be some who say, you know, there are seven sacraments. They include the institution of marriage and uh, the laying on of hands and so on as part of these sacraments. Um, but we don't necessarily see it that way. We, we see that there are only two very specific things that the Lord Jesus himself instituted in the church. The other things are there. Marriage is an institution of God, instituted by God, and laying on of hands is there and so on. Uh, but Two things that Jesus himself personally instituted in the church are water baptism and the Lord's table. And so we need to get a clear understanding of it. Now, some of you may be already familiar with what both of these mean. You've already experienced it. You already participate in it. But it's good just to review it and see, understand what does it really mean. Now, let's begin approaching these two topics by saying that when Jesus instituted this for the church... He did not intend it to become a meaningless ritual. Amen? It's not something we just do because I'm supposed to be doing it. Jesus told me to do it. No. He intended these two ordinances to be channels by which we receive grace empowering in our lives on an ongoing basis. Amen? So we don't just do it meaninglessly, but we we do it Understanding what Jesus wanted us to receive when we practice these things as a community of believers. He put it in there for a purpose. He put it in there so that we could be recipients of grace and power in our lives. So what a baptism and the Lord's table that we partake of are really means for us to receive grace and power. Not just rituals we practice because, oh, this is the first Sunday of the month, time to have Lord's table. It's not like that. He put it in there for a purpose. And so we need to understand that purpose. 
So let's just talk first of all about what a baptism. Some of you may be familiar with these things, but it's good just to review, get a clear understanding so that you can pass this on to others. What a baptism. Here are some things for us to understand what the New Testament teaches about water baptism. We see that water baptism, number one, was introduced by John the Baptist. So even before the Lord Jesus began to baptize people and have people baptized, John the Baptist was the one who came with a message of repentance. He was the forerunner of Jesus. So he was preaching to the people, saying, repent, turn away from all your own doing. And as a sign of your repentance, come and be baptized in the river Jordan. So water baptism, therefore, is a call to repentance and is a, is a statement that you have repented. In fact, when some people came to John just to be baptized, he rebuked them and he said, Bring forth fruits unto repentance, then come and be baptized. In other words, first show evidence that you have repented. Because this is not to be done meaninglessly. Once you've repented, there's a change in your heart and mind. Come and be baptized. So what a baptism is a sign that we have repented. We turn away from our own wrong ways. Interestingly, number two, we see that Jesus himself was baptized by John. So Jesus comes to John as he was baptizing people in the river Jordan. And he, he comes to be baptized. And John says, sorry sir, you're supposed to be baptizing me. Not me, you. And Jesus responds, it's interesting, because Jesus tells John, John, I need you to do this. Let's go ahead with this. In order for me to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, in order for me to obey everything that's right, to do whatever's right in the eyes of God, I want to come and be baptized here. Jesus himself had no sin to repent of. So he was not repenting of sin, but he was fulfilling righteousness. He was doing everything right that was needed to be done right in the sight of God. So here you see the importance of baptism. That the Lord Jesus himself was baptized in order to do what was right in the eyes of God. You know, sometimes we, we tend to take baptism, water baptism very lightly. You know, after all, Water baptism is not what gives me salvation. I'm saved by faith in Jesus. And so, why do it? But the fact that the Lord Jesus himself went and was baptized shows us the importance of water baptism. He did not treat it lightly. Amen? So that gives us a second reason for our second purpose of water baptism. It's in order to fulfill everything right in the sight of God. So first, it's an act of repentance. Secondly, it's Uh, a work of righteousness, doing what's right in the sight of God. Interestingly, after that, when Jesus began his ministry, Jesus baptized people in water. Although he didn't do it, but he had his disciples baptize people in water, right, in his ministry, in his earthly ministry. So again, it shows us the importance of water baptism. Number three, water baptism is a command in the New Testament. When Jesus told his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. He said, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's a command. So why do we do it today? Because Jesus commanded it. So we still baptize people in water once they make a decision to follow Jesus. Number four, baptism. Water baptism expresses your decision to follow Jesus Christ alone. 
Peter in his very first sermon as he preached in Acts chapter 2. He preached the gospel to the people and towards the end of his message he tells them in Acts 2, 38 and 39. Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what a baptism is a sign or is an expression of your faith in the message of Jesus Christ. That you truly have received Jesus, believed in what he did for you and me on the cross. And it's an expression of your faith to follow Jesus Christ alone. You know, for these Jewish people, that was a big challenge for them to step out of Judaism and to choose to follow and be identified with Jesus of Nazareth. It was a big step. It was not an easy thing. And yet, Peter challenges them. He says, come, be baptized, every one of you. Repent and be baptized. Number five, baptism is a symbol of the inner experience of death, burial, and resurrection with Jesus. Paul brings this out in Romans chapter 6. As believers, listen to this, very important. As believers, we have experienced a spiritual transformation. Spiritually, we have been dead with Jesus, buried with him, and raised up to walk in a new life. And we are seated with him. In heavenly places. This is a spiritual reality. But now water baptism is a symbol of a real spiritual truth. When you're baptized in water, you're immersed in water, you're dead. You're buried. And you're raised up as you come out. It's a symbol of a, of a spiritual reality. Now symbols are powerful. Every time you engage in something symbolic of spiritual reality, you are standing in a position To receive the impact of that spiritual truth in your life. Amen. So when you, when somebody goes through water baptism and enacting that symbol or symbolically expressing what has, what is a spiritual truth, they are now positioned to receive the power of that truth in their lives. That's how we encourage people when you go through water baptism, experience, uh, expect to experience the power of the cross in your life. That which has broken off the old and set you free and, and, and released you to walk in newness of life. If there are bondages, there are addictions, things that are holding you back. Here's a moment as you step into water baptism to expect the delivering power of Jesus Christ in your life. Amen? So it's a powerful thing. Even though it's just symbolic, it's symbolic of a, of a spiritual truth that's powerful. That brings freedom, deliverance and, and everything that Jesus did for us on the cross. Number six is this, that baptism is an expression of your desire to maintain a clear conscience before God. Peter brings this out in 1 Peter 3 and 21. He says that baptism is a response of a clear conscience. That means you're saying in your heart that you do not want to have anything that keeps you from having a good relationship with God. And you will not, and you're obeying God in water baptism. And as long as we put that off and say, okay, you know, it's okay, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. You still have one thing that you haven't done to obey God. You still have one thing left. So here what a baptism is a response of a clear conscience to God. Saying, God, my conscience is clear. I want you to obey in all things that I know I ought to be obeying you. Some other things that we see in the New Testament is that the only requirement to be baptized is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every time in the book of Acts, as soon as people believed, they were baptized in water. 
or quickly right after that. Unfortunately, for some reason today in churches, we have this idea, you know, you become a believer, you get sanctified, then come. But that was not, you don't find that in the New Testament. As soon as people believed, they were ready to be baptized. So the only requirement for a person to be baptized is that they have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That they have repented and believed in Jesus. You're ready for water baptism. Then you live a sanctified life. Amen? So we should not put in requirements that are not there in the Bible. The Bible says repent and believe and be baptized. So that's the only requirement. Number eight, baptism is by immersion in water only. The word baptize itself means to immerse, to submerge, to be overwhelmed, to be completely covered. So in the book of Acts, when they practiced water baptism in the church, they always immersed people. They didn't sprinkle people with water. You can't overwhelm somebody with water just sprinkling them. So let's do it right. Immerse people in water. As I've already said, number nine, you don't have to be very holy. To be baptized. The only requirement is that you believe in Jesus. So, uh, you know, let's get rid of this idea that, you know, I have to be, you know, very holy and sanctified and then come for water baptism. That's not a requirement. The requirement is that you believe and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Then you're ready for water baptism. Number 10. Water baptism will not make you a spiritual giant. You still have to keep growing in God. Some people have the wrong idea. Man, when I get water baptized, I come out like this big spiritual giant. No, that doesn't, it doesn't do that for you. You still have to grow in God. You still have to read the word. You still have to pray. You have to stick God and keep journeying with Jesus uh, through time. Number 11, because baptism is an act of obedience, you can expect blessing. Every step of obedience brings blessing. So therefore, we tell people that when you're going to be baptized, expect God to bless you, to touch your life in a powerful way. Because you are obeying God and obedience opens the door for blessing. And now last point here that I want to make about baptism is that because baptism is a symbolic proclamation of the cross, you can expect the power of the cross to impact your life. So when, you, when somebody steps into water baptism and you step in, into it with meaning, it's a, it's a moment of blessing and it's a moment of power being released into that person's life. Amen? So it's a powerful symbol uh, of the reality of the cross in, in our lives. Now, just one last point before we move on to the next sacrament. Some people see that in the book of Acts, whenever the disciples baptize people, they always, it's always recorded, they baptize them in the name of Jesus. Whereas when the Lord Jesus gave the great commission, he said, go And baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So now people find this as a discrepancy. You know, how come Jesus gave this formula, but throughout the book of Acts, we only find them being baptized in the name of Jesus. And so there's a lot of arguments on what is right. And sometimes people have come up with something erroneous as as well as a result. But here's what I want us to understand. Whenever the New Testament talks about in the name of Jesus, it simply means by the authority given to us in Jesus. Or by His authority. For example, Jesus said, you pray to the Father in my name. I'm giving you the authority. 
Pray to the Father. Jesus said, you preach in my name. I'm giving you the authority. Lay hands on the sick in my name. You cast out devils in my name. Meaning, I'm giving you authority. By the authority, I'm giving you. So when we look at the book of Acts, whenever they baptize people, when it says they baptize them in the name of Jesus, it means they, by the authority given to them by the Lord Jesus, they baptize people. It does not mean that they did not use the formula Jesus gave. I think it's implicit. It's quite obvious that the apostles or the disciples would have followed the formula that Jesus gave. Just because it is not stated in every case. So they say they baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. No. It doesn't mean they didn't use the formula. What it is telling us is when they baptized people, they did it by the authority Jesus Christ had given them. It's like, for example, in Acts 3 and 4, when the layman was healed and the Sanhedrin called Peter and John and said, Tell us by whose name or by what authority have you done this? They said, Let it be known to you that by the name of Jesus Christ, this man has been healed. That means by his authority, we have ministered to this man. Right? So, they tell him, we don't want you to preach in this name. They said, no, we will preach in the name of Jesus. By the authority he has given us, we will preach him and his resurrection. So, when we understand that, then there, we don't find this as discrepancy. We find that the apostles baptized by the authority and that Jesus had given them. And they used the formula that Jesus had given. Obviously, they would not have forgotten the formula Jesus gave them. Amen? So today, when you and I baptize people, here's how we do it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy. So we satisfy both the book of Acts and Matthew 28. And nobody can find any fault with us. I say, did you baptize in the name of Jesus? Yes. Did you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. Everybody's happy. Right? So just do that. In the name of Jesus, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Basically, to us it means, by the authority Jesus has given to us, we're doing this and we're doing it in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. You're baptized in the name of Jesus. Amen? Now let's move on. So if you are here and you've not been baptized in water by immersion, since the time you got born again and you believed in Jesus, then I want to encourage you to do that. Not because it is something we do as a church, but because it's a command given by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's, it's up to you to obey that command. So our, as an act of obedience to his command, you need to be baptized in water. I want to now move and talk about the Lord's table. Spend a few moments talking about the Lord's table. In the 26th chapter of Matthew, verses 18 to 30. This was on the day of Passover. The Passover is fast approaching. Jesus was about to go to the cross. He meets with his disciples together. This is the last supper he's having with them. And at that moment, he takes the bread, he breaks it, he passes it out to his disciples, and he says, Take, eat. This is my body that is given for you. He takes the cup and he says, This is my blood of the new covenant that is given out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of this cup. Not too long ago, prior to that, in John the 6th chapter, Jesus preached a sermon that drove everybody out. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. That's in John the 6th chapter. 
people got offended. They said, what kind of a message is this? He's telling us that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the Bible says people went away after hearing that sermon. They didn't want to come again after that. But the point Jesus was making is, in eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he's saying, that is symbolic of you being a part of me. And so here, as he takes this bread with his disciples, says, take, eat, this is my body. I'm sure in their minds, they're going back to that sermon that he preached. So this is what it means to eat his body. When he gives them the cup and he says, this is my blood. They go back to the sermon. He told us to drink his blood. If we do that, we are saying we are part of him. We are in him and he is in us. Amen. And he shows them what, how to do it. You eat this bread and drink this cup. Over 12 years after that, there is a man named Saul who was originally a persecutor of the church. And, and he has an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And after that, he goes off into the deserts of Arabia. And there, the Lord Jesus personally reveals to him what took place at the table in the Last Supper. Paul was not there, but Jesus reveals to him exactly what happened. And he reveals to him the meaning, the significance of the Lord's table. So I want us to read two passages of scripture. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to read the extended portion of scripture so you get a full understanding of the context in which Paul is presenting the Lord's table. And then just talk about the significance of the Lord's table, what we should expect. And how we must do it right. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we'll read from verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14 onwards. Paul is writing. He says, Therefore my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather... That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are edify. Let no one seek his own, but each, uh, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you. And for conscience sake, 
For the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of? For the food over which I give thanks. Therefore, whatever you do, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Gentiles or to the church of God. Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Let's also go to chapter 11 and pick up in verse 17. He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, it's on purpose that I've read this full lengthy passages of Scripture for us to get the full context within which Paul is presenting the truth of the Lord's table. Let's look at the positives and then we will address some of the negatives that Paul is trying to address in the Corinthian church. The Lord's table, as we have been mentioning, was instituted by the Lord Jesus himself. It is something that all of us as believers can partake of and must partake of. Celebrating the Lord's table, number one, is an expression of our personal faith in the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. So when you are partaking of the Lord's table, you are saying, I personally believe that Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. Amen? It's an expression of personal faith in the death the burial and resurrection of Jesus. 
So that's why, that's what you're doing when you are partaking of the Lord's table. Number two, it's a proclamation of what Jesus finished on the cross. Paul says, whenever you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death. We are proclaiming in this place, when we all are partaking of the Lord's table, we are saying, Jesus died for us on the cross. He took our sins. He took our sicknesses. He became a curse. He destroyed Satan. He triumphed over death. And we are making a huge announcement in the realm of the Spirit. Amen? Can you imagine Jesus looking down from heaven as a, as a body of believers come together and partake of the Lord's table? They are announcing, we believe in what you did for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Amen? I'm sure the Lord Jesus is standing to back up every believer who's proclaiming his or her faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Amen? I'm sure the angels of heaven are watching and celebrating along with us. The triumph of the cross. And I'm sure that the devils once again are reminded of their defeat when we celebrate the Lord's table. Amen? I'm sure they don't like it. They don't like the celebration of the Lord's table because it's a proclamation of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? And remember, every time we do something symbolic, we are positioning ourselves to receive the reality of it impacting our lives. That's why when we eat the bread and drink the cup, even though it's symbolic, yes, it is powerful. It's in that moment we are saying, Lord, I believe. And we are positioning ourselves to receive the power of the cross once again in our lives, touching our lives. So it's powerful. Number three, It's an expression of our faith in his return. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He says, you know, disciples, I'm doing this with you right now. And the next time I'll do it, I'm going to have you sitting at my table in heaven. Amen. So when we do this, we are doing it in remembrance or in recognizing the fact that one day we will be seated with Jesus, with Him, in heaven, partaking of it together. There's coming a day when we will be with Him in heaven. So every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're saying, Lord, I'm looking forward for that time when I will be with you in heaven, sitting at your table, celebrating Supper together. The marriage supper of the Lamb. So it's powerful. Number four. As Paul said in the 10th chapter. It's an expression of our union with Jesus. Paul said when you eat this bread. Are you not. Is it not your communion with the body of Christ? When you drink this cup. Is it not your communion with the blood of Jesus? And then he says you know whoever eats of the altar. Fellowships with the one being worshipped. So that those who offer things to idols are fellowshipping with demons. But we, when we are eating of this bread, we are fellowshipping with the Lord himself. We are declaring our union with Jesus Christ. So when you partake of these elements, the bread and the wine, you are saying, I am one with Jesus and he is one with me. I have fellowship with him. I am one with him in spirit. 
And he's one with me. It's a powerful expression of our union with Jesus Christ. We're eating his body and drinking his blood. Not literally, of course, but it's symbolic. And it's speaking of our union with Jesus Christ. Number five. It's an expression of our union with one another. He says, because we all eat of that same bread and drink of the same cup. He says, we are one body. We are one with each other. Amen? So whenever we come to partake of the Lord's table, what are we doing? We are making a proclamation of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We are positioning ourselves to receive the power of the cross in our lives. Number two, we are proclaiming our faith in the fact that He is going to return and we're going to be with Him in heaven. Number three, we are proclaiming our faith in, uh, we are proclaiming that we are one with Him, we are in union with Jesus. And number four, we are saying we are one with each other. It's a proclamation of our unity with one another. Amen? And so it's powerful whenever we do this. Now, on the other hand, Paul says, here's how we must receive or partake of the Lord's table. He says two things. He says, we must examine our lives and renounce every sin, known sin. In other words, don't come and do this lightly. This is powerful. Prepare your heart. Get rid of sin. Because in the light of the power of the cross, in the light of the coming of Christ, in the light of the fact that I'm in union with Him, in the light of the fact we are in union with one another, we do not want sin to come in anywhere in these areas of our lives. So it says, examine your heart. Come with a clean heart. And secondly, he says, we must do it discerning the Lord's body. The word discern simply means to understand. Do it meaningfully. Do it understanding and knowing what this is about. Amen? It's not a ritual we just do quickly to get over with it. Oh, it's the first Sunday of the month. Let's go through this. No. Do it with understanding. Discern. The Lord's body. Discern what's happening. And then Paul says, listen. If you do this unworthily, then what you're really doing is putting yourself in a place for judgment. Meaning you're unnecessarily positioning yourself for all the wrong things on your life. If you do it unworthily. And he says, because you're doing it unworthily, some of you fall as, uh, are sick and some of you die prematurely because you're doing it unworthily. So now here's the question. What is Doing it unworthily. There are two issues Paul is addressing in the Corinthian church. The first one is what we read in the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord's table and also go and drink or eat the food offered to idols. So here is the problem in the Corinthian church. Many of them came from that background of idolatry. They've embraced Jesus Christ. They now partake of the table of the Lord. But then they also go back and eat things offered to, offered to idols. And Paul says, that is doing it unworthily. It's doing it wrong. You can't partake of the Lord's table and say you're having fellowship with the Lord. And then go partake of the devil's table and say you're having fellowship with devils. You can't do that. Are you with me? And then he actually explains it very uh, clearly in the, in the remaining verses that we read. He said, it's not about the food. He said, do we think what is offered to the idols is anything? No. He says, you know, when you go to the market, whatever you find in the market, eat it. Whether it says halal or not. <laughs> you don't know 
what the shopkeeper did. He may have opened his shop doing some puja or he may have first done something to the animal before slaughtering it. I mean, you don't know. So whatever is offered in the market, you buy it, you give thanks, you eat it. It's not about the food. And he says, do we think the idol is anything? No, we're not afraid of the idol. It's really not about the food. He says, really, it's about the conscience of the one who is giving this to you. Because when they say this is offered to idols and you receive and you eat it, they're thinking you're worshipping their idol. And you cannot be saying I'm worshipping Jesus by eating his body and, and drinking his blood and then going out there and eating this as an act of worship. So really, it's not about the food, but it's about your heart. Amen? I'm sure many of us eat the same bread at home with chicken curry that we have as part of the Lord's table. I, know, I mean, of course, sorry, here we use the wafer, so I'm not sure you don't eat the wafer. But you know, sometimes when we use bread, you might eat the same bread at home. So it's not about the, the piece of bread or wafer that we're talking about. But it's the fact that you are doing it by faith, understanding what it represents, and therefore you have fellowship with the Lord. If you're doing it the same way when you're eating something offered to idols, see, it's not about that food. The food is just food that God created. You cannot eat it with thanksgiving. But when you do it as an act of worship, you're giving the wrong message to the person. It's his conscience that's being affected. He thinks you're worshiping the idol. You're not. But by doing this, he thinks that. So for his sake, you say no. So that's the first thing, the, the dual play of worshipping Jesus and worshipping idol that Paul is addressing. He says that's an unworthy thing to do. Now, it's very likely none of us here are doing that. But idolatry in the New Testament not only covers bowing down to physical idols, but idolatry could be anything in my heart that I bow down to. Amen? So if I come and worship Jesus as my Lord and Savior by eating His uh, body and drinking His blood, but I'm carrying another idol in my heart, I think it's equivalent to the issue Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 10. You're bowing to something else. Jesus is not really the Lord of your life. And doing, partaking of the Lord's table that way, he says it's an unworthy thing to do. There's only one Lord in your life. It's Jesus Christ. Then come, eat his body, drink his blood. Then come, fellowship with the Lord. Amen? The second unworthy thing he's addressing is in chapter 11. What happened here in the Corinthian church, there must have been a bunch of unruly people because when, it, they, when the pastor announced, saying, it's time for the Lord's Supper, everybody ran to the front. They wanted to grab the biggest piece of, lo- of the loaf of bread and biggest, you know, drink of juice or wine that they could get. So they turned it literally into a feast. Thank God we have ushers here, you know. We said, please be seated. <laughs> and so they, they actually turned it into a feast and it was more about let's eat and drink and, and Paul says, you know, don't do this. You got homes to drink in. But then he explains to them how to do it right. So what was the second unworthy manner that he was addressing? It was them doing this in a very light way. Uh, without really understanding the meaning of it. So I'm sure none of us do that. We don't run in front to get the biggest piece of bread or anything like that. But the, the principle or the truth is, we must understand the meaning of what we're doing, then do it. 
if we do it without that understanding that, look, this is, this is what this, this means, then we are in some way just like the Corinthians, eating it for bread and juice. So don't do it either that way. So these are the two unworthy things that Paul addressed. And he says, you know, when you do it in an unworthy way, you actually miss the blessing. So while doing this should actually bring healing to you, it leaves you void of receiving healing. And so you become weak and sick and some even die prematurely. Whereas if you did it in a worthy way, you could actually receive healing in your life. Amen? So the Lord's table is a powerful symbol. And if we partake in a meaningful way, can bring great power and blessing in our lives. Both these sacraments of water baptism and the Lord's table were given to us not to be done in a ritual manner, but as practices that would open up the grace and power of God into our lives. I want to encourage all of us here to partake and do that in, in that manner. I want to just talk about a few things here before we close. You know, what is the requirement? The only requirement in the New Testament is that you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to partake, uh, to be water baptized and to partake of the Lord's table. I realize some churches say, you know, for water baptism, you have to be a believer of 10 years and do this and do that. And all. We don't find that in the New Testament. So we don't enforce it. At all people's church, if you're a believer, you repent of your sin, you believe in Jesus, you're ready for water baptism. That's it. Amen. So do I have to wear white clothes? Well, if you want to. <laughs> we don't even make that a requirement. Amen. The same thing for the Lord's table. Some people say you have to be 13. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says you have to believe. What makes you and me think that a six-year-old cannot believe in Jesus? Why do we want to rule them out? Amen. If a six-year-old or an eight-year-old or a ten-year-old believes in Jesus, they are ready. Why do we have to discredit them or their faith? In all likelihood, they have stronger faith than us. So the New Testament does not make any particular age as a requirement. The requirement is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You ready for the Lord's table? Now, I understand some churches make, the, make water baptism as a prerequisite to partaking of the Lord's table. I understand the reason they do that, because they want to make sure you're a believer, which is fine. But because the New Testament does not explicitly make that as a requirement, we do not either. We just say, if you're a believer, you're born again, you're walking with the Lord, you're welcome to partake of the Lord's table. That's it. Amen? Here are some questions, common questions we run through and we close some people may ask a question, you know, I was baptized or sprinkled before I actually became a believer. Do I need to be baptized again? Is it alright to be baptized again? And the answer is yes. Let's do it right. You're supposed to be baptized after you became a believer. Right? So you, you need to be baptized correctly. And there's a precedent to this in Acts 19 where Paul meets some people in Ephesus. They've been baptized by John. But then he teaches them about Jesus and he baptizes them in water again in the name of Jesus Christ. Second question, do I need to reach some spiritual level of maturity before being water baptized? As we've been saying all along, no. As long as you believe in Jesus, you're ready. Number three, can one believer baptize another believer in water? Or should water baptism be only done by a pastor or a spiritual leader? In the book of Acts, we see believers baptizing believers. Philip 
was not a pastor. He was not some big apostle. He was a person who served in the kitchen. And he gets to Samaria and he preaches the gospel. He leads people to Christ. He baptizes them. Ananias was not a pastor, was not an apostle, was not a great preacher. He was just a believer in the church. Jesus sends him to baptize Saul, who later becomes Paul the apostle. So if you're a believer, you by all means, in the name of Jesus, you can baptize others who want to be baptized. Number four, what if I partook in the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, not really understanding or having faith in what I was doing? Will I be struck down with some deadly disease? I don't think God is that bad. God's a good God. Just say, God, I'm sorry. I really didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't doing it meaningfully. I'm sorry. You repent of it and from now on, do it meaningfully. Don't be afraid of some sickness or disease striking you down. Number five. Should I partake in the Lord's table when the person leading the celebration himself does not believe in what he is doing? Again, I don't have chapter and verse for this. This is my personal opinion. I don't think it has any meaning. If the person leading it doesn't understand the significance of what is being done. So you're better off not participating. Number six. Can I as a believer partake of the Lord's table at home? Or by myself or along with a few other believers? Of course you can. You don't have to do it only in church. At home. You want to take part of the Lord's table? Hey, Jesus is there. You can remember what he did for you right there. So you at home by yourself or with a few other believers. You break bread. uh, And that's what they did in the New Testament. In the temple and in every house. They did that. So feel free to do it. You may don't have to feel like some, something will strike you down because the pastor is not around you. No. It is you as a believer proclaiming your faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. Amen? So go ahead and do it. You can do that and receive the blessing of the cross in your life each time you do it. We trust that this message was a blessing to you. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at contact at apcwo.org. Also, visit our website www.apcwo.org for additional resources. Thank you for listening and God bless you.